0: Now's a good time to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions. There's a lot of great things about this relationship. Like us, Survivors for Solutions wants to see continued innovation in the pharmaceutical space. They embrace the free market and believe that the free market is the best solution to improve patient lives. It was founded by our close friend CZ, or John Swartacki. CZ founded the group when he saw the damage that the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna bring to the pharmaceutical ecosystem. He's been a patient, and Eric, I think you'll talk about that in a minute, but he's been a patient for several decades himself, and he wants solutions not just for himself, but for his family and friends and for Americans in the future. And he knows how important it is for continued pharmaceutical innovation to happen here in the United States, because if it doesn't, it won't happen anywhere.
1: Joe, you're right, CZ is a longtime friend of both of ours and a seasoned Washington pro, but what most people don't know is that John Swartacki has also suffered from multiple sclerosis for over 30 years. He was diagnosed and has required four different breakthrough drugs over the course of this disease in order to just live. All these drugs have been developed in a robust ecosystem of medical discovery and delivery an ecosystem that the Inflation Reduction Act and President Biden now threaten That threatens the hope and security and safety, the liberty and ultimately the lives of millions of Americans suffering from chronic, debilitating or life-threatening disease. He formed survivors for solutions to help save this system so others like himself have the chance at a fulfilling and robust life. You can learn more about CZ and his lifelong struggle with multiple sclerosis from our March 27th DCEKG interview, plus his website, survivorsforsolutions.org, or on Twitter at Hope Matters Most. Joe, we're really fortunate CZ is our leader here at DCEKG, and we look forward to advocating on his behalf and the behalf of millions of American patients in the years to come on our show.
0: Hello, welcome back to another edition of DC EKG with Joe Grogan, myself, and Eric Euland. Joined today by Naomi Lopez, a good friend and a scholar at the Goldwater Institute. Naomi's written for many years on a whole host of subjects, and she has insights uh, and unique insights, I should say, into a wide variety of healthcare issues. Eric, why don't you start by
1: introducing the audience a little bit to Naomi's work. Sure, thanks Joe, and welcome Naomi. We're very glad to have you here on DCEKG. So Naomi has been at the Gilwater Institute for the last eight years, currently serving as the Vice President for Healthcare Policy. Her work is focused on pharmaceutical drug pricing, right to try, and certificate of need reform, and 21st century healthcare innovation. She has over 25 years of experience in public policy and has previously served at organizations including the Illinois Policy Institute, the Pacific Research Institute, the Institute for Socioeconomic Studies, and the Cato Institute. She holds a BA in economics from Trinity University and a master's in government from Johns Hopkins University. Make sure to check out her work at the Goldwater Institute, www.goldwaterinstitute.org, and follow her on Twitter at at Lopez Bauman to stay up to date on Naomi's contributions in the healthcare space.
0: So Naomi, maybe you give us a little bit of overview on what the Goldwater Institute does, uh, why it exists and what you do there uh, for the Institute.
2: Certainly. Thank you, Eric and Jay, for having me as your guest today. The Goldwater Institute is a liberty-oriented think tank. We're based in Phoenix, Arizona, but we do work in in the state legislatures around the country, in Congress, in the courthouse, and in communities around the country.
0: Cool. So let's start with a, with a hot topic right now uh, that no one's really focused too deeply on from a policy perspective, but I want to get your take on it and that's artificial intelligence. Uh, people who are becoming aware of artificial intelligence, it seems like it's the hottest uh, technology subject now across a range of fields. And uh, specifically in healthcare, there's a lot of talk about regulating in healthcare. There's, worried about, there's worry about how this might affect equity and diversity, how the government's going to control it, how companies might uh, run amok And need to be regulated, which agency will regulate it. Uh, Recently, the Office of National Coordinator at HHS issued a a rule where they asserted the authority to regulate artificial intelligence uh, software for care delivery. But this is an area that FDA has regulated for a long time. So I'm just wondering, as a liberty-oriented think tank scholar, what's your take on on all this right now, like top line, what are you seeing? And maybe what, what's the hope and worry of Naomi Lopez and all that?
2: <laughs> well, I think it's first important to understand that artificial intelligence is a very broad umbrella term for the idea that software can mimic decision making and in some cases do it better than humans because of capacity to calculate and crunch a lot of information very quickly. But it's also important to point out that that AI in healthcare is not new. Now, certainly, ChatGPT was unleashed on the public recently, but but AI has been used in healthcare for quite a long time. And and when we take a look at, for example, the Food and Drug Administration, they've um, they've sanctioned and signed off on hundreds of devices that use AI in clinical decision making. We know that um, that that there are, in fact, Um, algorithms that can help physicians at the bedside make decisions about the treatment of their patients. So this is not not new, it's new in the public domain, but it's not a new concept in healthcare, it's not new technology per se, but it is rapidly evolving and changing. So I think that there's a lot of fear right now around AI, but I think if people take a step back and think about things like anti-lock brakes in cars, or lane departure assistance or um, or or, um, or, or uh, the cruise control that allow that, that will keep your car at a certain distance from other cars brake assist things like that we have we put a lot of trust into technology on a daily basis without thinking about it and I think AI and healthcare has already started doing that without people really realizing it and that will only continue and I think that the real, challenge for us today is to make sure that that technology and innovation is embraced in a reasonable manner and that the fear mongering and those who would regulate it out of existence and destroy it before it even has an opportunity to thrive is really where we need to be focusing on.
1: So Naomi, let's let's stop there for a moment. Your point is AI or com- computers, chained <laughs> together have been working on behalf of bettering healthcare for a long period of time, even though the, the policymakers and the general public probably didn't realize it. Your sense though, is it's not so much Terminator as it is Wall-E when it comes to helping when it, when uh, healthcare questions arise. And now as it bursts into public consciousness and the adaption and the increase in its utilization of healthcare sp- sphere shouldn't be constrained by regulation. Are there in the absence of this regulatory surge, which as Joe laid out is getting pretty intense. And I guess it's just the the beginning of what we're going to see. What is a better way to go to ensure that the adaptation and utilization of AI as you define it in healthcare space will proceed unimpeded and bring about benefits which we haven't had a chance to discuss yet.
2: Well, I think that there's enormous opportunity and upside in using AI in healthcare. And there are already structures in place regulating it at the federal level. And keep in mind that states do have regulation over the practice of medicine. And what I would like to see going forward is a cautious approach to upending the regulation of AI currently. There may need to be modifications over time. We should rethink how we about how AI is regulated. But the bottom line is that it's already in use. It's already and and companies, because there's such a microscope on how AI is being used, do have a very strong interest in self-regulating and making sure that their products are reliable and fair. Um, But but you know we really have an enormous opportunity to expand healthcare access and improve outcomes using innovation and technology that we've never had before. When we think about what we really want in healthcare, it's not partisan. We all want access and affordable healthcare. We want the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And these technological tools and innovations really can make that a reality much sooner if it is allowed to flourish.
1: So you mentioned there's a current regulatory landscape. Is that on the federal level state level, a combination, how does it work in today's practice?
2: Yeah, so currently the Food and Drug Administration does have regulatory authority over devices that are marketed. And a lot of these devices, which the FDA has already signed off on and sanctioned in hundreds of cases, use AI and machine learning in those devices. We also have the practice of medicine that is regulated at the state level. And we also have, unfortunately, Everyone under the sun who has regulatory authority or legal authority wanting to further regulate AI And that's the part that I think is a real mistake and what we really need to be careful about But in addition, we also have a private sector. We have an insurance industry that actually underwrites physicians and institutions that provide health care and that's also part of the that, that's that's a private regulatory system, if you will, where, you know, it's not just that a, it's not, you know, the the, the the government, either at the federal level or the state level, can say something is safe, but really the insurers are the ones that know if something is safe, and they have an important role to play as well, as well as the companies knowing full well that if they take missteps or if they overreach and um, and if there's a, a negative outcome, that they that there will be a lot of scrutiny on them. And so they also are being careful as well. Um, so to, Naomi,
0: yes. sorry to interrupt you, but but why are so many companies clamoring for regulation? Uh, you've been around the, the libertarian <laughs> world for a long time, and now we've got a lot of companies that are widely viewed as innovators. Uh, Microsoft, for instance, has come out, chat. GPT's CEO said that it should be regulated. Uh, What's your take on this? If you, if your approach is, look, they have a motivation to be self-regulating and you're more worried about the government. Why are they calling for regulation?
2: So the inside baseball answer is that the early entrants into a market want regulation to keep their would-be competitors out. So if you look at ride sharing apps, for example, the first to market, the biggest ones, the strongest ones, the early ones, They wanted more regulation so that they would be the only competitors in that sphere. The other reason why you would want regulation as an AI company is so that you have certainty about what you're building, so that you know what the rules of the game are before you invest a lot of time, resources, and money into creating a product only to find out that it's not legal because of the regulatory environment. That's not clear, that's going to change quickly. So those are the two big reasons why companies do want regulation, but I don't know that they actually, the latter, I don't know if that they actually want regulation, they just want clarity. They wanna know what the rules of the game are before they before they join the game so that the rules don't change in the middle.
1: Naomi, so we, Naomi is there another motivation? Sorry, Joe, just a quick question. Is yeah. there another motivation besides those first two? Is there also, if you have a regulatory structure, no matter how it in place, you have some protection against the inevitability of the trial bar and lawsuits coming after you. If you can claim as a defense that I was complying with the scheme laid out either from the regulatory agency or in uh, a legislative framework, then don't you have the ability to try to fend off some of this legal activity, which we're likely to see accelerate once AI's adaptation continues to expand?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I'm not speaking as an attorney. Um, I'm not an attorney. But, I'm not either.
1: I'm a commit, sir. <laughs>
2: but yeah, there certainly is um, some protection that is afforded a company if they can show that they are following the, the rules, uh, the legal rules that have been established by by legislatures, either at the federal or the state level, certainly.
0: Well, Naomi, I was I was just sort of intrigued because you you spoke favorably of FDA's regulatory scheme in this manner and how they've. Uh, approved hundreds of devices that use machine learning uh, over the past few decades. You've been a critic of FDA uh, and several times in your career, and you've been a champion of right-to-try legislation. What was your motivation to get into right-to-try legislation? For people who don't know what it is, maybe you'd, you'd describe a little bit about what it is and why you think it's so important.
2: Yes, so right-to-try was a national movement where... It was where there are patient groups that were very frustrated with a very, very slow pace of medical innovation and approval by the federal government to access treatments. So the right to try legislation was passed in 41 states and signed into federal law in 2008. And really what it does is it it allows patients who are under their doctor's care, where there is a company that's willing and able to make the treatment available to use the treatment after phase one clinical trials, which is basic safety testing, without having to beg the federal government for permission to do so. There was a regulatory pathway called compassionate use that the FDA used, but unfortunately, in order to get to the point where you got to ask the federal government for permission, you were usually already facing months of delay. And these are cases where terminally ill patients didn't have the time to wait on the federal government to, to 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 break through all of the red tape and bureaucracy in order to beg the federal government for permission to take that treatment. So right to try basically said that in originally that in states where there was legislation that made it legal for a patient under their doctor's care to seek treatment that 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 was perfectly legal and. So it, once it was signed into federal law, it became the law of the land. And well, it has been successful, it is working, and it is actually accelerating clinical development more recently. So
0: Naomi, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Naomi, I was just wanted to, i sorry to interrupt you, but why was it necessary to do a law? Why didn't FDA do this on their own? Or did they not have the authority to do it?
2: So the Food and Drug Administration is a regulatory agency. Regulators regulate. And there is, um, I think... A lot of um, a lot of different views on why the FDA doesn't but they certainly have a culture of not uh, uh, they, have a, uh, they have a they have a they have a culture of basically making something so safe that you may actually deny it when needed and it's you know somewhat understandable because in the past when something has when there have been um, when there have been negative outcomes from an approval, FDA officials are hauled in front of Congress and scrutinized and criticized. Um, but, but in addition to that though, the culture internally is one where they only want people to have access to things that they've deemed safe. And if you have other authorities or other ways of getting around it, it does undermine their power and influence in that, in that particular space. So I think that there are quite a few reasons why that is the case. But we, but we know that the Food and Drug Administration is incredibly slow, it's a 1960s regulatory framework that hasn't kept pace with today's modern medical innovations, and we really have a regulatory mismatch. Today we're talking about AI and the role that it can play in healthcare, and more importantly, I think, when it comes to the FDA, in drug development and clinical acceleration, but yet you know it's a mismatch because you've got a system that's based on 1960s technology and knowledge you would not you know you would never go to a physician today that was using 1960s medicine but that's the regulatory environment that we're dealing with
0: well we we might have to come back to this over the break and explore it a little bit more because that's kind of my worry on the AI front right that they've been yes they've been approving things with a light touch from a light touch regulator Regulatory structure, but there's a distinct possibility that given more authority, they'll be more aggressive in restricting access, asking for more data, and even more attention. So what I'm struggling with is, to your point, I spent a couple years at FDA, and the saying was nobody gets fired for not approving a drug. Right? You get fired for the drug you approve, and it has side effects. And I, I, maybe when we come back, we can start having a little bit of a discussion about why. you, you sound a little bit more sanguine than I expected on FDA regulation of AI. And are you just, um, are you worried at all that, FD, that FDA over time is going to get a little bit more
1: restrictive? All that thought, we'll be back. This is DCEKG House Call with Big Wig Media and our, our distribution partner, Evergreen.